Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Speak to us now. Open our hearts to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, dear Jesus. Amen. So who is your king? We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21 on this special day, Palm Sunday, verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 21. And the question today is, who is your king? Uh, as you see in the film here, it's kind of a visualization of the king that the people had anticipated. But many people have many different ideas about who the king, who the Messiah was to be. Just like today, people still have different ideas about who is the king. Matter of fact, last year on Family Feud, the question was asked, who is the king? That's why the question was answered. Who is the king? And you know how it is. The contestants try to guess what did most people say? What did the majority of the people who were polled say? When you think of the king, who is that? And over 80% of the people said, Elvis, that's who the king is. That's who most people say. Only 7% said Jesus Christ. And the truth of it is, that might be a fairly accurate assessment. I think each one of us have to ask the question ourselves, who is our king? Who is really in charge of our lives? Who's the Lord of our life? The truth of it is, many people want to receive the salvation of God, but not the lordship. We want to dissect and put in two different compartments. God, I'll take your salvation. I'll take your blessings. But as far as who is con control, I've got that part. I'm just fine. I got it, God. I'll be fine. I just need you to help every once in a while. We, many of us look for the financial God or the family God, the success God, the relieve my pain God. But the truth of it is we can't dissect his lordship from our needs and our salvation as much as we try and as much as we want to. Just like I can't say uh, that if you ask me who I am, if I say Ron, that's who I am, but I'm also a Holton. I can't deny the fact that my last name is Holton, so I can't just say that I'm just Ron because I'm Ron and I'm Ron Holton. And Jesus Christ, he is our Lord and our Savior, or he's neither. And that's the question for us to reveal or for us to assess today. Who is Jesus in your life? And the bigger question is, who is your king? Who serves as your king? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your ambition. Maybe it's your ego. But it's a question we all have to answer. Who ultimately is our king. Jesus shows up on the scene here, and of course, there have been multiple miracles, multiple times he's preached and taught throughout the last three years, but now he's kind of taking the lid off. He's not asking anybody to hold it down or to keep it quiet. In chapter 20, as he is arriving into Jerusalem on the way, on that road that we just saw, he encounters a couple of men who are blind, and they cry out to him, Son of David, which is a messianic term that the Jews would have understood. Son of David, heal us. And it was believed that 
the Messiah, the true Messiah, would be able to heal the blind, to give sight to the blind. And so he affirms that title. He doesn't deny it. As a matter of fact, he fulfills Scripture by healing the blind. In John 12 and in Matthew as well, the people begin to cheer. They begin to sing and to cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us now. They begin to wave the palm branches and put the cloaks before the donkey. And what's interesting about that is they had been anticipating a Messiah for quite a while. Matter of fact, not quite 200 years before this time, there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus that they believed to be the Messiah. Matter of fact, uh, Jews still celebrate Hanukkah today because of the victory that Judas Maccabeus won. What happened there's there was a guy named Antichus Epiphanes. Maybe you remember him from history. He was the leader, the Caesar, so to speak, if you want to use that terminology. Uh, he was in charge. He was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire at that time. And the Seleucid Empire had control over uh, the greater Judea area and certainly Jerusalem. And so that's where uh, that was part of their kingdom. Of course, Rome is making a march at this time as well, but they still pretty much own this area. And Antichus decides that he wants to really squash Judaism. And so to make his point clear, he erects a statue of Zeus in the temple. This is a huge issue for the Jews, of course. This is the sacred holy place of God in which they worship Yahweh. But if that wasn't enough, he goes and he gets a pig and he sacrifices that pig on the altar of God before the statue of Zeus. Many scholars would call that the abomination that leads to desolation. And a priest there that day named Mattathias, who was Judas Maccabeus' father, couldn't stand it anymore. He gets in a fight, kills a soldier, and eventually he's killed as well. And a revolt starts. The people begin to rebel, and they're led by Judas, Mattathias' son. And Judas knows, he's smart enough to know, we can't take these guys uh, man to man. There's too many of them. They're well-trained. They have the weaponry that we don't have. And so what he does is he begins in a series of what we would call guerrilla warfare. And he engages that army over and over again by sneak attacks and by guerrilla warfare Finally, to the point where one day he marches in and he uh, cleans out Jerusalem. And you know what the people do? They begin to sing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're putting the palm leaves and the clothes before him as he rides in on his white horse, on his victory horse. Finally, the Messiah has come. The promised one has come, but it is short-lived it's not lasted, and not long after that, Judas Maccabeus is killed. And the people find themselves, not many years after that, under the oppression and domination of the Roman Empire. There have been many who've come and have made the claim to be the Messiah. But now here comes Jesus. Here comes someone who is different. The crowds are singing Hosanna, hoping that he's the one. And what's interesting, it's actually on a Monday. We call it Palm Sunday, but actually it was occurring probably on Monday. And on the Monday before Passover, the biggest event of the Jewish calendar, the priests would gather and they would read in the temple Psalms 
24. Psalms 24, verse 7 through 10 goes like this. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. What the king of glory may come in, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So while they're reading this in the temple, the people outside are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus comes in. We saw how he comes in. And the next step we see is he goes into the temple. And we'll read it here in just a moment. And he cleanses the temple, and he uses the term, this is my house. This is to be, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. He owns the temple. You see these messianic and divine titles that he's taking, claims that he's making, and we pick up here. And read in Matthew chapter 21, beginning with the first verse. And now when they drew near to Jerusalem, the principal city of of Judea, it is the most important city. It's the city where Jesus has started as a child when we first come on the scene and see him as 12 years old at Passover. And now we see him here again in his final week. And they came to Bethage, which is about a mile outside of Jerusalem that looks over the temple, to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. He takes that title, the Lord, Kyrios. He takes that title, that title that indicates divinity power, sovereignty, kingship, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. Now, this is Matthew uh, parenthetically letting us know here is a prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9, and he quotes it verbatim. He says, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming you, humble and mounted on a donkey, as you heard the high priest say, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So here is the prophecy given that many times the Jews had thought this would be the leader, this would be the one, Judas Maccabeus or another. But now here comes Jesus, not on a war horse, not on a stallion, but on a donkey, just as it had been prophesied hundreds and hundred years before. And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's what you would do before a king, showing your respect, showing your honor, showing your allegiance. You would put your clothing, your cloth, your coats upon the ground. And then they also took what was believed to be, we know this from the the other gospel writers, palm leaves. Now, the palm leaves at that time were the national symbol for the Jews. Of course, they didn't have a flag, but they would would wave the palm leaves. It was even on on much of their currency. So it was a national symbol. They were waving before him. 
This is who we believe to be our deliverer, to be our king, to be our Messiah. And the Bible says, and the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna, save us now to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalms 118. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Praise him. Save us now, Lord. We believe. We believe that you're going to be our king. You're going to be our deliverer. You're going to deliver us from the Roman oppressors. We've seen others that have come and said, but we believe that you'll be the one. But Jesus was coming differently. We go on and we see verse 12, that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Yet again, a fulfillment of prophecy as he heals the blind and the lame here in the temple. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They knew that the Romans would hear this. They knew that the authorities would hear it. You've got to squelch this. You can't make these claims. This will lead us to war, and it's blasphemous on top of that. Hosanna to the son of David. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read? And then he quotes prophecy again, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Now, the gospel writers, you also see that he said, and if they don't do it, then the rocks will cry out my praise. The rocks will cry out. What do you mean by that? The rocks will cry out. Well, as you entered into the city, there was, for back of a better terminology, there was graveyards where people were buried under the rocks. Those who were wealthy such as Joseph of Arimathea, had caves. Uh, Still others might even have their bones put in ossuaries, but most were buried under the rocks. And he's saying that the dead themselves will cry out if the children don't proclaim it, if the voices are not heard, the names are not heard. They are calling out in anticipation in the sense that they had waited for this day. And here it is. The time has come. The day is now. Do you see the parody in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9? The king coming in on a donkey. The one who would save coming in on the foal of a donkey. As opposed to what the people had anticipated. The king who will give me what I need. The king who will give me what I want. What I've been waiting for. That's what I'm looking for, for somebody to bring judgment on the people who have oppressed me. I'm looking for somebody to make things right, to get even. But Jesus has something far more important than simply ridding them of their oppressors. He's come to deal with the sins of their own hearts, their need for forgiveness of sin, their sacrifice that would be required for them to know salvation. 
here's the way it works. Jesus one day will come, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 19, upon a white horse. Now, whether that's figurative or literal doesn't matter. But one day he's coming in judgment. But the first time he has come, it has been for peace, for salvation, for hope. One day he will make all things right. And all sin will be dealt with. But today, he offers grace. And grace begins at the cross. And you and I have to answer this question. Do we believe... Do we really believe, if he's our king, if he's our Lord, that Jesus always gives us what we had asked for if we knew what he knows? Do you believe that? That Jesus will always give you what you would have asked for, what you would want if you knew what Jesus knows. You know, I've got children, and I also was a child one time. and Sometimes my children are a lot like me kind of goes like this. They don't, all, they don't always want to go to school. See, when I was a kid, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't like to go to school. You had to work there. I didn't mind recess, but the rest of that I could leave. So I didn't like to go to school, but my parents made me go to school. I didn't understand it. I, re- I still remember, I know you don't believe this, I still remember the first time I was in first grade. Um, <laughs> I thought you might catch that. I, I thought it was, I was so mean that my mom left me there. And I told her I did not want to go back. And then I went again the second time to first grade, and I told her I didn't want to go then either. And I didn't like school. And I didn't like eating my vegetables. I didn't like doing chores around the house. I didn't like helping. I didn't like any form of discipline. And I didn't understand why my parents would make me do these things. But I know now. And the truth of it is, if I could have understood that they were preparing me for life, what was going to come? And if they didn't do it, they wouldn't have loved me at all. And if we could ever get it in our minds, if we really believe that Jesus is the king, that he is the Lord and the Savior, that he is the sovereign ruler of the world, that he is preparing us for eternity, that it's a bigger picture than right now what I feel and what I'm experiencing. He is preparing forever. And if I knew what Jesus knew, then I would say, lead on, Lord, you're right. But the truth of it is, I don't. I don't even begin to comprehend or understand. And so I'm left to trust when it doesn't make a lot of sense, when it's hard, when it hurts, when it's difficult. But real faith and Jesus really being Lord and King of my life means that I believe that Jesus gives me what I need and what I would even ask for if I simply knew what he knows. You know, one of the oldest messianic prophecies in all the Bible is found in Genesis 49, verses 10 through 11, and it goes like this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, that's where Jesus is from, nor the ruler's staff from his feet until until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Binding his foal to the vine And his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he will wash the garments in wine and the robes white in blood. That's a prophecy that was given thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, I think 
if he can give me those prophecies in Genesis and then in Psalms and then in Isaiah and then in Jeremiah and then in Zechariah, and that it could be prophesied that Jesus would come on a donkey, not just in Zechariah, but even in Genesis, that I can trust that God with my life. That I can say, Jesus, you are my king. I stand amazed in your presence. I stand amazed that you would give grace to me, a sinner. I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I can't save myself, that I'm not going to be good enough. I can try to be good. I can try to say I'm going to be perfect. At the end of the day, we're all sinners. Each and every one of us, we've all messed up and we'll continue to do so. And our only hope is that we have a perfect and loving and merciful God who said, you know what? You don't have to earn your way. You don't have to try to deserve it. I'm going to, by grace, give you salvation if you will simply put your trust in my son and make him the king of your life, your Lord and your Savior. That's why he hung upon the tree. There's a story that I was reading, a true story, uh, by Ellen Vaughn in her book, She's a reporter and a journalist, and she wrote a book called The God Who Hung on the Cross. And while she was in Cambodia doing a story, she discovered this story and wrote this in her book. And it goes like this. In 1999, a pastor, Tai Singh, traveled to Kampong Tom province in northern Cambodia. And throughout the isolated area, most villagers had cast their lot with Buddhism, Spiritism, and Christianity was almost unheard of. But much to Singh's surprise, he arrived at one small village, and the people warmly embraced him and greeted him and wanted to hear about the message of Jesus. And when he asked the villagers about their openness to the gospel, an old woman shuffled forward and bowed and said, We have been waiting for you for 20 years. And she told him the story, the mysterious story, of a God who hung on the cross. She said, Back in the 19... 70s, the Khmer Rouge, the brutal communist-led regime, took over Cambodia and destroyed everything in its path. And when the soldiers came to our village here in 1979, they rounded us all up and they forced us to start digging holes, which would have been our graves. After the villagers had finished digging, we prepared to die. And some screamed to Buddha, some screamed to demon spirits, others to their ancestors. But then one woman started to cry out for help based on a childhood memory she had had, a story she had heard from her mother before she passed away about a God who had hung on a cross. The woman prayed to the unknown God on the cross. Surely if this God had known suffering, he would have compassion on their plight. And suddenly her solitary cry became one great wall of crying and wailing and praying out to the God who suffered and hung on a cross. And they continued facing their graves, wailing and slowly turning around. They noticed that their, cap- their captors were gone. The soldiers had left. And the old woman finished telling this story. She told the pastor, she said, Ever since that humid day 20 years ago, our village has waited for someone to come and tell us more about the God who hung on the cross. I've got good news for you today. It's the gospel. And the gospel is this. It's that Jesus Christ has come to earth. He has come 
to take our sins. The gospel is not a good idea. It's not a set of instructions. It's not good advice. The gospel is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And the question is, do you believe it? Have you received it? And have you committed your life to him? Many believe with their head. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 19, that the demons believe and shudder at the sound of his name. But have you committed to Jesus Christ, not only as your Savior, but as the Lord and King of your life? Do you believe that he is so amazing that if you knew what he knows, (laughs) you would ask for what he gives? It's a big, big step. Big litmus test because it defines who we really are and what we really believe. So I ask you this morning, do you believe that Jesus always gives us what we had asked for if we knew what he knows? Are you amazed by the grace that he's offered, by his death, burial, and resurrection, by the gift that he's given? Have you come to that place where you recognize your need for a Savior? And for Christ to rule over your life. Do you believe that he lived a perfect life, lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died? You come to a place where you not only believe that, but where you are willing to commit your life. You saw the picture of baptism of those who came this morning and said, I not only believe, I commit. I believe and I commit for Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today very simply by recognizing you're a sinner and saying, Jesus, I I know I can't save myself and salvation only comes by you. I don't understand everything. I don't know everything, but I believe and, and I commit to you all that I understand and I trust that you can save me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Come into my life. I invite you to do that if you've not done that before. Or if you've never really taken that claim seriously, today is the day of salvation. Would you receive that gift? Father, we thank you so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we praise you. Lord, I pray that you bring us to that place today to where we trust you so fully. That we can say, God, I don't understand. I don't like it. This is not what I choose. This is not how I want it. But I trust you. I trust you so much that you have an eternal perspective, that you see eternity. And that if I knew what you knew, I would ask for what you're going to give me. So I believe that today. In spite of my junk, in spite of the pain, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the inequities of life, I believe that you are sovereign and you are Lord and that this earth is for a short period of time. But for those of us who know you as Savior, eternity will just have begun as we blink our eyes when this life is over. Thank you, Lord, for a salvation that's free to us but costs you everything. For us as believers, Lord, convict us to live a life that is amazed by your grace, to share that hope that is within us 
as we come into Easter this weekend to look for opportunity to share the good news and to invite people to hear the good news that they might experience the amazing grace of God. In your name, dear Jesus, we pray.